Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son by the slave woman was conceived the normal way, but the son by the free woman was conceived through a promise. These things are an allegory. The women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slave children. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem because the city is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. It's written, Rejoice, barren woman, you who have not given birth. Break out with a shout, you who have not suffered labor pains, because the woman who has been deserted will have many who has been deserted will have many more children than the woman who has a husband. Brothers and sisters, you are children of the promise, like Isaac. But just as it was then, so it is now also. The one who was conceived the normal way harassed the one who was conceived by the Spirit. But what does the scripture say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, because the slave woman's son won't share the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we aren't the slave women's children, but we are the free women's children. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, that we were born of the free woman, that we have the freedom to receive your love, your mercy, your forgiveness. It's free to us. All we have to do is believe in the suffering, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. It's easy for us to have that kind of faith. It wasn't easy for the Father. It wasn't easy for the Son. But Jesus paid all that price for us so that we can be the children of the free women. Thank you so much for that. Now I ask that you will please bless John and the words that he'll be giving us from your word. Clear our minds of all the clutter that's in them, please. And please help us to receive these words in our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our whole being. Let those words permeate through our everyday lives and let us live in a way that we can become closer and closer in our relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Faith. So it is a weekend, in case you didn't know, um, being in Prescott, where we celebrate our independence and its implications. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everybody. It's a wonderful holiday. And I'll confess, uh, my timing these days is terrible. It's like we do family dedications the week after uh, Father's Day, bad timing, and I'm going to levy a small but significant critique on our country on 4th of July weekend. Probably should have saved it for Columbus Day, but <laughs> it has implications in the text, I promise you. So first I'll say this. Uh, I love the United States of America. I'm glad we live here. And it is a, a country with a, an abundance of gifts within it. Uh, the way in which our country is founded on the elevation of personhood, of responsibility and optimism. Um, I love the United States, okay? So that's on the table. Here's the critique, 
And, and it's, it's kind of the shadow side of the gift, as every gift has, every personality has, every country has this going. They have a set of gifts, and within that light side, there's a shadow side and implications of that when it's not uh, seen appropriately. And that is in our country, we struggle, and I say we because we are a part of it, uh, there is an inordinate amount of self-sufficiency, uh, autonomy, and individualism that can be idolatrous and antithetical to the gospel. That in our country, probably more than most, we believe that any human can do anything, right? And it's kind of encapsulated in one of Adidas slogans, or Adidas, sorry, uh, impossible is nothing. That comes from a Muhammad Ali quote where he says, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men, gotta love Muhammad Ali, who find it easier to live in the world they've been given than to explore the power they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact, it's an opinion. Impossible is not a declaration, it's a dare. Impossible is the potential, or impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary, impossible is nothing. Now, I think that is great for sports. It is terrible for the spiritual life. I'm one who uh, is all about testing the bounds of endurance and believe in yourself and you can do it uh, physically with a lot of things. Uh, spiritually, though, it's a terrible lie. It's a terrible lie. The truth of Galatians comes against human arrogance, autonomy, and our grand self-sufficiency projects. The impossibility is that humans can save and rescue themselves. The lie that we often believe is we can save and rescue ourselves. This is the foundation of all AA, right? Step one is you admit you're powerless. Step two is you need a help beyond yourself to save yourself. So again, I believe in all y'all. You can do great things, you can accomplish wonderful. Again, hear what I'm saying. You can go run a marathon, an ultra marathon, heck, you could do, I believe, the vast majority of you, you got it in you. However, when it comes to your heart, your mind, your soul, you can't. It is impossible. But the good news is that the gospel breaks in and says we need outside intervention. And it is found in Jesus. This account that Faith read from us as we are continuing our, I don't know, three, four month journey through Galatians is Paul's kind of crescendo of his argument over the last two chapters of three and four where he is addressing uh, their self-reliance. He is going after rival teachers. He's reminding them of the relationship they have with one another and God, and he is pressing them to remain in Christ. And he goes back to that in verse 21. Do you not hear what the law is doing? Do you not see what the law is meant to do in the hearts and lives of God's people. As we've seen before in Galatians, it's, it's, a it's a signpost that points us to our need of a savior that we cannot keep the law perfectly. And it's a mirror that shows us our own need. And he's saying, you really want to be under that? You desire that? And then, and I don't know if you saw in the text, this, this one, 
This text, uh, verse 21 through 31, is one where you kind of got to tread lightly because there's a lot of uh, wrong turns one can and has taken throughout history. This text has been used for all types of anti-Semitism and, and just really bad teaching in the church where Paul goes in to compare their story with Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and Ishmael. But he takes them to Genesis 16, uh, chapter 16 through 21. Why? And I'm going to submit two reasons. First is this, and we've gone over this again and again and again. Paul is looking to root them in the story of God. In all of Paul's teaching, what he does over and over and over and over again is points them back to who God is and what he's done through history that's seen in the Old Testament, which is helpful and instructive to us that he doesn't build it purely on his preferences. Again, some of us have been at churches where it's like the pastor's preferences all of a sudden become the law of the land. And, and we build up cultures and communities on preferences and secondary issues rather than the story of God. Paul is rooting them in the story. And he does a similar thing in both Romans and here where he references the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those are the three major categories of the Old Testament. You have the law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and then the writings, Psalms, wisdom, literature. He's leading and he's loving them with God's word. And he writes, says this, at certain key points, Paul uses the Jewish technique of alluding to each section of the Hebrew scriptures, Torah, prophets, and writings, though not necessarily in that order. I propose that he does this in 421 through 5.1 with an allusion to Psalm 87 in verse 26, alongside his references to Genesis and Isaiah 54. Paul is bringing this polemical letter to a climax, doing so appropriately and ironically by constructing a paragraph with rich scriptural backbone. He is appealing to Torah against those who want to impose Torah. And this is the argument of Galatians, that the false teachers in that time wanted to say, Jesus plus law, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus seasons, Jesus plus all of these other things that Jesus actually had fulfilled. You need to do all of these things to be part of the family of God. And Paul say, no, that's not the case. It's Christ and Christ alone. So the first thing he's doing is rooting them in the story. And then the second thing he's doing is defending himself and the teaching of the gospel against the false teachers. So the rivals had come in and came against the simplicity of Jesus and the Spirit's work in forming this community. And they're attempting to teach, here's how you become a son of Abraham. And like I just said, it was not just Christ alone weaves you and grafts you into this story. It is, yeah, Jesus is good, but also circumcision, law, feasts, etc. And so he's defending them in rooting them in the simplicity of the gospel. And he does this by drawing out multiple comparisons. He says it's an allegory when a human takes things into their own hands. When a human attempts the impossible. And so there's all these comparisons through this text between Hagar and Sarah. I'll put them up on the screen, or Bethany will for us, uh, that gives you the comparison. From Hagar, you see there's Ishmael, who is the son of slavery. The birth that happened was according to the flesh. Abraham and Sarah go, God's taking too long, so we can get a son. Just go sleep with your concubine with Hagar, bad idea. (laughs) 
That represents the Old Covenant in Mount Sinai. It represents present Jerusalem of these false teachers. And the result is they will not inherit the kingdom of God and, and uh, the promises therein. Whereas with Sarah, you see that her son is Isaac, the son of freedom. The birth comes through the promise. This represents the new covenant in a different mount. He's alluding to Mount Zion. There's a heavenly Jerusalem, and the promise is that that is where inheritance and sonship and life with God is found. These comparisons throughout these 10 verses are all pointing to a single reality, and it is this. If you rely on yourself, if you take things into your own hand for salvation and continued life with God, if you attempt to keep the law, it's impossible. And not only is it impossible, it's worse. It's slavery. And this is the theme, the motif of Exodus that he goes back to again and again and again to attempt to keep the law in your own strength, to save yourself by yourself. That is slavery. Wow, the alternative and the good news is that in trusting Jesus, there's sonship, there's freedom, there's inheritance to be found. And so the temptation that I believe Paul is drawing out from the story of Abraham in the city of Galatia, or cities of, and churches of Galatia, and us, the, the temptation is what we attempt to do in this space between God's promise and its fulfillment. For Abraham, and I love in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, I think I've said this before, where the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham was as good as dead. That's, that's a not so nice way of saying he was really, really old. He was really old. I didn't say it, Paul. I didn't say it. You said it. He said it. I didn't look at you. I thought it, but I didn't say it. That was you. But it was perfect. <laughs> Abraham's good as dead. Hebrews says so. And so Sarah and him create their own master plan outside of what God had promised. And we can look at it, and I joke about it, but can you not kind of empathize a little bit and understand, like, where they're at? God says, you'll have a son, and they're really, really old. They're, the Bible's clear, they're past child-rearing age. And on top of that promise, it's not like, and nine, ten months later, and then came this baby. Hallelujah. No, it's years and decades that happen from promise and fulfillment. And so though I don't agree with it, nor does scripture, scripture goes to great lengths every single time uh, polygamy or concubines are mentioned that it just draws out how hot of a mess that is. It goes through it again and again and again. When people take things into their own hands and go outside the, the promise and plan of God, it is a mess. And in Galatia, Paul's saying, you see how your situation is so similar to this? And they might be scratching their head, well, how so? What are you talking about? And he's saying, you receive life, calling, promise. You're knit together in this new community called the church. And then to use his language, you were, you were fooled, you were bewitched. In the in-between of Jesus' first coming and the arrival of his spirit and his promise to return and make all things new, you started in the spirit, you're going, and now you're attempting to perfect yourselves in the flesh. You're attempting to keep the law and add these things on top of the gospel. He's saying there's a better way than that. And he draws out from, again, the law. He goes to the prophets. He 
calls on the Psalms. And so what's going on in this passage, Timothy George helps us. He says, the burden of his message is clear. The great reversal envisaged by Isaiah from, the bar- from barrenness to fruitfulness, from despair to joy, from desolation to blessing can only be accomplished by the unilateral intervention of God himself. How dare anyone say to a person in such dire straits as the woman in this example that she should sing, rejoice, and shout for joy? The words ring hollow unless we realize that it was the Lord himself who spoke thus to her. How could she not be afraid or fear disgrace when there was so much against her? Later in the same chapter, Isaiah 54, God himself provided the answer for the Lord, or for the, your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Again, Paul was pointing to God's gracious sovereignty and infinite love that is the foundation of our justification, freedom, and hope. So I hope you can see through that a little bit of what Paul's doing in this passage that then comes to us and asks questions of us as well. Will we rely on our Redeemer? And most of us, especially the good church kids among us, say, of course, Jesus alone. And I wasn't just looking at you because you're church Sorry, Becca. Um, <laughs> we go, yeah, yeah, sure, it's Jesus. Like, I, I, I check the box, I'll, I'll get the right answer, I'll do all the right things. Yeah, I'll rely on Jesus alone. But where that is found, where the rubber meets the road, so to say, is how we wait. When life doesn't pan out as we expect it. When you find yourself in the in-between of promise and fulfillment, which is really all of human existence, is between this promise that God said, yes, I'll save you, I'll care for you, and I'll come again and I'll make all things new. We find ourselves in that overlap. How will we wait? When the dream doesn't arrive on time or it shows up and it's a little bit shoddy. You're like... That wasn't what I was expecting, hoping for, praying for. This is it? Really, God? What do you do? Well, waiting, the gift of it is it exposes what we worship. Waiting exposes what we worship and what we rely upon. It it reveals our hearts and our dependency. I mentioned David Foster Wallace, who was a secular philosopher, author, wrote a handful of books, and I mentioned his speech uh, called This is Water from Kenyon College, and here's an excerpt from it. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in your daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. 
worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Yeah, that, that's a secular guy that gets it more than most Christians. All of life is worship, but it's often under the surface, and it's revealed as we wait, when expectations aren't met. And the gospel, this good news of Jesus, invites us again and again and acknowledges our inability, our desire for control, our utter need, and the gift of Jesus that I often miss for myself and especially my perspective on others is that it doesn't point the finger and laugh. It doesn't taunt. It doesn't condemn. But the gospel opens up arms and invites us to a new way, to a new trust, to a new and better Savior. That's what Jesus does for his people for the first time and again and again and again. It doesn't ask us to climb the ladder to get it together, but comes to us and meets us where we are as we are. The British poet Malcolm Gweet says, in vain we search the heavens high above. The God of love is kneeling at our feet. Though we betray him, though it is the night, he meets us here and loves us into light. So I believe this is what the gospel and God's spirit does day after day in his word and in our gatherings together, is that it is reorienting us in our desperation towards rejoicing because God provides for the barren. He mends the broken. He drops down a knee for the disappointed and depressed. And it's a shocking call to us and reversal that this God is near and knows. The God of the impossible is with us. And he gives us time and he gives us space to evaluate the in-between. And again, you can see the gift and the difficulty that that can be for Abraham and Sarah. And the whole mess that they created in taking things into their own hands and relying on themselves. You can see it with this church in Galatia, this beautiful new community that was struggling to find their feet and their foundation and remain in Christ. And can you not see it in our own day and age? As we live in a time and place that has its own unique gifts and its own difficulties. And one, as I said in the beginning, is that we got it on our own. We don't need one another. We'll figure it out. We got this. And I believe that can be true for sports and physical fitness. It's really terrible for the spiritual life. Where are you in the waiting? And can you recognize in the past how rich God's work has been in your life, the fruit that has come from those trials, those, uh, those difficult seasons where it seems as though you're lost and wandering and not like you're like, oh yeah, I want to go back to that place, but you can see the fruit that God creates from those places. Could that also maybe be the case where you find yourself today in the gap between promise and fulfillment? between desire and realization, that God is in that space looking to draw you out, looking to mold you and shape you and root you and ground you deeper into the love of Jesus and the connection with his people. Anne Voskamp, she wrote the book uh, Thousand Gifts and she writes in nice pretty flowery language. She says this, 
Waiting is a Herculean widening of everything within you into a canyon that can fill with a rising ocean of hope. And all this waiting isn't destroying us. The waiting is growing us. Waiting isn't loss, it's enlarging. The longer the heart waits, the longer the heart, or the larger the heart expands to hold the largeness of the abundant life. The waiting is widening us, so hope is never running out, but more hope in Christ is running in. Waiting is the sacrament of the tender surrender, the art of a soul growing large. And so how do we find that in the everyday? Well, here's my few suggestions for us. As we've gone over in this book again and again, I think one of the great battles for Christians today is to apply our identity to everyday life. This is often how and why we experience gaps, how drift can be so drastic. And you see Paul doing this in the language he uses again and again throughout this book and really all of his writings. In verse 31, he says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And saying brothers, and saying children, he's reminding them of his identity. One fun fact about all of Paul's writings, he says our Lord, I think it's 59 times. My number may be off. This comes from a book, When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. He talks about this at length. Paul uses the phrase, our Lord, 50 some odd, 60 some odd times. He uses the phrase, my Lord, once. Once. The language he uses is intentional, and what it's meant is to apply this identity that we are family, we are children, we are brothers and sisters in Christ to everyday life. And so we have the power to fight against the idols of our day, and it begins with where we find our identity, where we look for rest. And as brothers and sisters together and family in Jesus, we have solid ground there. The second thing is that we're called to move from being transactional nomads to a relational remaining. Transactional nomads, simply in my definition of that phrase that came to mind, transactional means we're constantly buying, selling, and looking at things through the primary lens of being consumers. What's in this for me? What's the value I receive? And um, that may be, maybe, okay for Amazon purchases, Big fan of buying the shoes, trying them on, doesn't work, send them back. Customer's always right. It's terrible for relating to humans because humans aren't products. People are never to be treated as products. But because so much of our life is conditioned in that way, transactionally, we begin treating people like products. Churches can be this as well. We've got a big machine, lots of cogs, throw people into it, oh no, that one lost their arm. Get them out, put somebody else in, just treating people as disposable products. And nomadic in that we, and there's multiple reasons for this, not gonna go into them all, we resist putting down roots. Part of that is understandable because some of us, metaphorically speaking, are missing limbs because of how we've been treated in the machine of life, jobs, churches. And so we're a little bit hesitant and resistant to go, yeah, I'm gonna throw myself all the way into that. Understandably so. 
But if we do that completely and totally, then we're left on our own strength to do our own thing. And that's not the way God designed things. He designed us to be relational and to remain with one another through the highs and lows of life. A relational remaining. I'm going to steal Anthony's thunder from next week and read chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm. That is, remain there. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I'll let you draw out all the beauty, but you can see his press again and again and again is have this relational remaining in Christ and with one another. And if that sounds a little bit impossible, uh, good, because outside of Christ's strength and help, it is. But then comes the good news yet again that the gospel frees us, empowers us, strengthens us, and holds us. It invites us to a new reliance. It interacts and exposes rival idols in our lives, in our world, and it gifts us with an unshakable relationship with God and empowers us to remain. I'm going to close with Hebrews chapter 12. Not going to be on the screen, but I was thinking of this on my drive over here this morning. After the writer of Hebrews gives all these examples, Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and all these people that had faith in God, that is simply they relationally remained through their highs and lows, and God held them in that. He says this, or the writer says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for, uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The gospel comes in, and in its love, exposes all of the areas in which we're attempting to do things in our own strength. And says, trust, depend rely on God in Christ. Press into his spirit, press into his life, and, and relationally remain with one another. This is a project together. And we find in that space and in that place, God is with us and for us in it. God will achieve what he promised to achieve in our lives. Paul says to the church in Philippi that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus. So friends, in Jesus, you're in good hands. And as you see yourself in his good hands, then you're free to uh, have the patience, the curiosity, and take a long view with one another. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we confess that we need your help in this grand, beautiful project that is life. We confess, I confess that often I am self-sufficient and reliant, overly confident in my own abilities, leading to a, a white-knuckling rather than a surrender, rather than prayer, rather than um, inviting other people in. And so, God, I pray that you would yet again forgive us and lead us in this path. 
God, for these people in this room today, for your church, would you meet us in this waiting place, wherever that may be, whatever it is in our hearts and minds. Would you help us yet again to surrender all of those things to you and find the hope and the joy and the peace of Jesus there. So as we respond, would you place your truth uh, deeper, deeper into our hearts, deeper into our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.